Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Lindsay Science. Detectives are still trying to determine the events leading up to a homicide last night. They know a Gainesville resident, Brandon Scott, fired a rifle at friends of his after getting into an argument with one of them, Timothy Robinson. Alachua County Sheriff's Office Public Information Officer Todd Kelly says he is still unsure what the two men were arguing about. Kelly also says detectives are still trying to figure out the owner of the gun, as there is no permit or registration to go along with it. Uh, our detectives are still actively investigating, and we have not been able to make a determination at this point uh, who actually owned the firearm that was involved. Kelly says the gun laws in Florida do not require a gun buyer to have a permit or even register it unless it's a concealed weapon making it hard to figure out who the owner of the gun is. Unless you're carrying concealed, you can have a concealed weapons permit to carry a, a gun concealed, but just for a law-abiding citizen to own a, a gun, there is no permit for that. Robinson was found dead about 200 yards from the home, and the other two victims, Wesley Boykin Jr. and Aja Newton, are currently being treated at Chance. They have undergone surgery and are recovering. Scott is in jail awaiting first appearance. ABC News reports the current flu season seems especially bad now that Boston has declared a public health emergency and a Pennsylvania hospital was forced to construct a tent to handle flu cases. Florida epidemiologist Karima Blackmore says Florida's cases are higher overall as well. The flu season, like in other parts of the country, started a little earlier in Florida this year, and the um, uh, levels that we're seeing uh, this year are a little bit higher than we saw last year and uh, match about the same amount of flu we saw in, in 2009. We have uh, primarily flu A uh, circulating, and the, uh, the strains that are out there match the vaccine that's available. Blackmore adds there may be more cases this year because of a different strain of the virus. The flu virus changes all the time, and uh, so it's just a matter of, um, you know, how, um, how much has changed and uh, how susceptible that we are to these infections. Blackmore says some parts of Florida, like the South, Central, and some counties in the North, are experiencing more cases of the flu than other parts of the state. She adds, however that it is hard to predict the future of this flu season. We monitor flu, we monitor the testing for flu, and uh, that's also why we think it's so important for people to get vaccinated because we can't say that it's going to get better. It can get worse still, and, and very important that people protect themselves against flu by getting the vaccine. Blackmore says there have been no reports of shortages for vaccines and urges everyone to get one in order to stay free from the flu this season. A famous and historic Central Florida attraction could see a future under new management. The Florida Park Service is developing a proposal that could convert Silver Springs in Ocala to a state park. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Leanna Scoschetti takes a look at this proposal and what changes could be in store for this Marion County gem. Silver Springs in Ocala has long been a Central Florida visitor hotspot. Owing to its long and colorful history, it once served as the backdrop for movies such as Tarzan and James Bond and has attracted thousands of visitors for well over 80 years. However, the springs have seen better days, and the Florida Park Service has created a proposal that could make Silver Springs a state park. Dr. Bob Knight, director of the H.T. Odom Florida Springs Institute, said that for years the state has thought that this would be great to convert to a state park. He adds that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to make Silver Springs more available to the public. 
Well, I think the, the attraction used to be more profitable than it has been for the last uh, three or four years, and the current holder of the lease is interested in getting out of the lease uh, based on what I know and uh, because it's not uh, financially attractive for them anymore. Silver Springs is famous for its glass-bottom boat rides dating back to the late 1800s when Hullam Jones developed the first glass-bottom boat from a dugout canoe. They've been a favorite attraction in Silver Springs for years, but biological factors have contributed to low, murky water. The about a thousand square mile area of neighboring counties, uh, neighboring counties that affect flows of water in the springs and the water quality in the springs. The flows have been declining. Uh, there's a serious decline. The, the declines are accelerating where the last few years the, the average water flow has been one half or less of the long-term average flow in Silver Springs. Knight said that the park has been undergoing many changes in recent years, mostly all of them negative. He says, however, that they aren't all due to the attraction. The nitrate, nitrogen contamination in the spring has been going up for well over 50 years, and it's, uh, it's just the record levels now still going up, levels that are much higher than uh, what are found to cause impairment in spring type systems. Knight says that because these factors have been detrimental to the health of the springs, he hopes that making Silver Springs a state park could bring awareness to these issues. My hope is that by becoming a state park, there'll be a renewed interest in restoring Silver Springs and restoring flows to Silver Springs and restoring water quality to Silver Springs at the same time that we're restoring, I guess, the landscape around Silver Springs and making it uh, more popular as a public, um, you know, a state park. Knight adds that definite plans are still in the works for the proposal, but some ideas are on the table. They include plans to get rid of the things that aren't compatible with the state park system, but that would try to retain the historical feel of the park. I know what's been discussed, and that includes uh, keeping the glass bottom boats, um, but reducing the... Um, the amount of infrastructure that's been built up around Silver Springs. It, the, the place has been sort of loved to death as part of the uh, for-profit attractions. It's Donald Forgione, director of the Florida Park Service, echoes Knight's sentiments and is enthusiastic about plans to retain the original feel of Silver Springs. The Florida Park Service, we manage over 2,500 historic sites, and this would be another one. And we're very, very proud of that. So we would always want to keep the theme or, or the attraction um, that it was an attraction, but now it's become a state park. Forgione says that the Park Service has had previous experience converting private attractions into state parks and that those previous projects have seen much success. We like to think that we do, uh, we manage property very well and that we are very accustomed to taking over attractions. Uh, we have numerous examples of that. Like I mentioned, the more, more prominent ones is Homosassa Springs and Wikiwashi Springs, where we've taken over the property in a sense, but still, um, still uh, are reverent, if you will, to the roadside attraction theme. So far, Forgione says the general feedback from the public has been positive and that those who have spoken out welcome the idea of making changes to Silver Springs. We've received great support. I mean, fantastic. I believe that the previous meeting with the community 
um, the majority, far the majority of those that spoke out really wants it to be a state park. And they want it to be a state park in all sense of the word, accessibility, uh, preservation, interpretation, education, affordability, uh, to make sure that we involve the citizens and the, and the private sector and, and the county and, and the state to work together to really polish up this gym that is Marion County. The Park Service is holding a meeting tonight at 7 p.m. at Vanguard High School in Ocala to get public input about the plan. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leanna Scacchetti in Gainesville. This weekend, a forum of environmentalists, state and federal officials came together for the 28th annual Everglades Conference at the historic Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables. With the backdrop of the luxurious tropical setting, key players discussed how to protect one of the world's most important habitats at a time when funding is slowing down. WLRN's Patricia Segustame was there and has this report. Governor Rick Scott made an unscheduled appearance during the opening reception to applaud last year's approval of an $800 million cleanup settlement between Florida and the federal government. But statewide, funding is scarce. Last year, budgets devoted to Everglades cleanup were slashed. Eric Eichenberg is the CEO for the Everglades Foundation, which sponsored the conference. He says the settlement, along with other funding plans, rely too much on taxpayers footing the bill for cleanup. The basic point of this study, the RTI study, is that 76% of the pollution within the Everglades agricultural area is produced by the farming interests there, the sugar interests. However, the report shows that only 24% of the cost to clean up that pollution is paid for by the sugar industry. At the federal level, deep funding cuts are a possibility. Sarah Barmeyer of the National Parks Conservation Association says a lot of the projects for the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan and the National Park Service are in jeopardy. Speaking about the National Park Service alone, they're usually right now they're looking at hiring seasonal rangers for the summer and they're waiting to do that right now and they may not even hire any for the summer. But there was some good news. Officials celebrated the groundbreaking of a $51 million pump station in South Miami-Dade. It will bring much-needed fresh water to Everglades National Park and the Florida Bay. I'm Patricia Sagastume in Miami. If you've ever had dreams about of being Steve Irwin, the Crocodile Hunter, or Harrison from Gator Boys, you now have the chance to make that dream a reality. According to the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, there have been 54 alligator attacks from 2006 to 2012 in the state of Florida. And Marion County is looking for willing and able people to help remove nuisance alligators from the area. Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM's Monica Marin spoke with FWC Public Information Coordinator Joy Hill for more information. Uh, well, gator trappers, nuisance alligator trappers, uh, basically perform a public service, um, and it uh, it helps us help folks out there who are having uh, issues with alligators that are that are becoming a nuisance for them. And what does the job entail exactly? Um, what it entails, the job uh, requires, first of all, that the that the applicants um, live in Marion County. Um, and basically, they need to be available for us to give them a call and be able to go out and, and trap, trap alligators for us. Um, their, their payment for this is actually the alligator, and they can, um, you know, sell the alligator carcass to a processor, or if they, you know, can do the process it themselves, they can. And basically, um, the meat and the hide is the payment for it. So once they catch them, do like they kill them? How does that work? 
Well, yeah, they have to. Um, they have to actually kill them after they get them. Uh, they'll, they'll they'll pull them out of the water, of course, and then they will either use a bang stick on them or they, um, you know, will use a, um, a a method to sever their their spinal column. So. Um, you know, they're killed as quickly as possible to be as painless as possible. And are you looking for people with experience necessarily, or could anyone who's just interested get involved? Um, anyone who's who's interested um, and is physically capable, you have to you have to be physically capable of um, you know being able to set bait out and pull in an alligator. Uh, so really, uh, we we provide a full training, and anybody who might think this is kind of a neat thing to do, it is it is not a full time job. Um, we the the, uh, the applicants do need to be available. Um, they they can certainly have a full time job, but oftentimes we get folks who are retired and just kind of looking for something interesting to do. They might think it's kind of cool, you know, to to be an alligator trapper. So. Um, you know, again, it's 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 just a part-time thing, but you you do need to have some availability because when we call, we do need someone to go out and try to trap the gator. And is there anyone else on site with them just in case anything were to happen, like any other safety measures in place? Well, they get the full training, and, uh, you know, certainly they can bring somebody along with them, an agent or something like that, um, to help them along. But there isn't anybody from, from the Fish and Wildlife Commission. That's kind of the whole point. We don't, we don't have the staff to be able to go out and do this, so we um, we contract with, with private individuals, give them the full training, and of course, if they have any questions or concerns or anything, we're there to help them, but um, primarily they're on their own. That was Monica Marin speaking with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's Public Information Coordinator, Joy Hill. No experience is necessary to apply, and applications are due by Thursday, January 31st. Coral is not as visible as panthers, manatees, or dolphins, but scientists say it deserves just as much federal protection as other animals beloved by Floridians. As WLRN's Christine DiMattei tells us, a government agency is inviting public comment about the best way to protect our region's coral reefs. Ecologist Margaret Miller says South Florida has a coral reef crisis on its hands. Seven of our local species are at risk of extinction. The National Marine Fisheries Service has proposed extending federal protection to 66 coral species, including seven found off South Florida's coast. Dr. Miller gives us a picture of what would happen if all of South Florida's coral reefs simply disappeared. We are looking at much less tourism in our region because people come to visit the coral reefs. We're looking at a loss of fisheries resources that we've come to depend on. And it will result in a world where our coastlines are more vulnerable to storms and ocean impacts. An endangered species listing could protect corals from a wide array of natural and man-made threats, including damage from dredging or beach renourishment projects. Three public hearings on the proposal are scheduled for this week, including one at Nova Southeastern University tonight. I'm Christine DiMatte in Miami. On Friday, we told you about Florida's Python Challenge, where wildlife officials are offering cash prizes to those who can catch and kill as many of the invasive species living in the Everglades as possible. 
But Florida Public Radio's Tremel Gomes reports one animal rights group is concerned. The group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals is concerned that decapitation is one of three legal methods Florida wildlife officials has authorized for killing pythons. Lori Kettle with PETA is calling on the state to ban the practice. We just want a humane solution to this problem. Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission Director Nick Wiley says he respects those views, which is why all hunters are trained. What we encourage is decapitation and also bludgeoning the head so that you can go ahead and end any nervous reactions that might be occurring after. The month-long python challenge is aimed at controlling the exploding population of non-native snakes in the Everglades. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Tremel Gomes in Coral Gables. Florida Governor Rick Scott has appointed five new people to the State University System Board of Governors. Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner has more. The governor is responsible for naming 14 of the 17 members on the board that oversees the state's university system. Throughout the year, several governors have named people to the board and have reappointed others. Governor Rick Scott's most recent appointments are five people with mostly business backgrounds. The majority of them are also from Naples, where the governor used to live. There's also Norman Tripp, who's waiting to see if Scott will reappoint him again to the board after his term recently expired. Last year, Scott reappointed past board chair Ava Parker, who was originally appointed by former governor Jeb Bush. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner. Following the tragic school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, Florida leaders are looking for answers about how to keep something like that from happening in their hometowns. But as Florida Public Radio's Reagan McCarthy reports, those answers span from everything from tighter gun regulation to more guns in more citizens' hands. What's the best way to protect Floridians from tragedies like the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut? That depends who you ask. Representative Dennis Baxley, a Republican from Ocala, says he likes the idea of expanding the number of places where guns can be carried. Making gun-free zones, while well-intentioned, desire to keep everyone safe, we have unintentionally, inadvertently, made them a target. Baxley was part of a panel discussion on the topic hosted by the Orlando Sentinel and Fox 35 News. He's the sponsor of the Stand Your Ground law, which has received recent media attention in connection with the shooting death of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, who was killed by self-appointed Neighborhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman back in February. And Baxley himself has gotten a lot of media attention lately for the solution he proposed for helping keep Floridians safe which includes more guns in more places like schools and government buildings, which are known right now as no-gun zones. That's sort of the opposite of Representative Bobby Powell's idea. Powell, a Democrat from West Palm Beach, is filing legislation that would let local governments restrict firearms at certain community events. It's a modification to a recent law that took away local power to impose stricter gun regulations than the state's. And Powell dismisses worries that a criminal who wants to get a gun into a protected area would find a way to do it. That's always going to be a concern, that if a criminal wants to do something, they can figure out a way to get around it. But if we put these precautions in place, it prevents easy access. It prevents a simple and easy opportunity for people to come into a place and just start to commit extreme acts of violence. And Representative Alan Williams says balancing the need to protect the Second Amendment rights of Florida citizens while making sure they're safe and feel safe requires a light tread. 
He says the Connecticut shooting had a big impact on families across the state. You know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is that the type of society we want to live in? Um, we have to go further and say, you know, we want our neighborhood safe. We want to, we want to obviously protect our property. And, and, and believe me, I'm a, I'm a advocate of the Second Amendment. Williams, a Tallahassee Democrat, is sponsoring a measure in the coming session that would repeal the state's so-called stand-your-ground law, which lets a person who feels threatened use deadly force without first having to retreat. He says really what happened in Connecticut and the measure he's working to repeal are different situations. And he insists his legislation doesn't take away from a person's Second Amendment rights. It's by no means is an effort to remove or take away any liberties that folks who are licensed to carry or have a concealed weapon. This does not have anything to do with taking away any gun rights. Uh, this is about making our community safer, uh, and, but at the same time allowing those individuals that want to protect their homes to still do that. Meanwhile, several other proposals have been discussed, including measures that would give schools more money for safety officers or plans to direct more money toward mental health care services in the state of Florida. The topic is expected to be a big one in the coming legislative session as leaders work out whether more school funding, more school security, more mental health services, more guns in more places, or more restrictions for getting and using guns will provide the best balance of safety and security for Floridians. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Regan McCarthy. The news that came as a shock to many Americans about Lance Armstrong wasn't a surprise to those of the cycling community. Armstrong is an American icon who was best known for his successful cycling career and overcoming health obstacles in order to compete. However, last year's allegations emerged that he used performance-enhancing drugs and now his career is in ruins. While this was a shocking discovery to most, University of Florida Cycling Club President Neil Shepard says that only that the only members of the cycling community whom the news truly affected were those few who were ignorant to the issue. Most people were not necessarily Lance fanboys and sort of knew what was going on. So there's, of course, there's a lot of new specific information, but I think a lot of the, at least the cyclists that I know, sort of knew a lot about this stuff already. Shepard adds that the only real impact the controversy has had on cyclists is with funding. He says that the sport is funded partly by TV, but mostly by jersey companies who don't want to be associated with a scandal such as this. Shepard also claims that while Armstrong may have previously brought a lot of attention to cycling in America, there are now adverse effects since respect for the, sp for the sport is starting to dwindle. Armstrong will be doing his first interview since the doping incident today with Oprah and Shepard, with Oprah, sorry. And Shepard says the reasons behind him doing the interview are self-serving. This is more, I think, Lance trying to, you know, trying to rebuild his life. He's doing this for Lance. He's not really doing this for the cycling community. So it's sort of a harsh word, but I suppose you could call it selfish. Because he didn't do it out of guilt. He did it out of necessity. Shepard backs up this statement by saying that Armstrong did not complain, come clean about his mistakes on his own, but rather was forced to. He also says that Armstrong is currently banned from participating in any athletic competition and therefore essentially has nothing to lose. The interview with Oprah will air Thursday, January 17th on her cable network. NOAA's Endeavor is a nonprofit organization in Gainesville that provides recreational activities for young people with disabilities. Behind this organization are the caring directors and the young man who inspired it all. WUFT's Shauna Mackey has the story. Oh, 
Noah's endeavor has been kicking for 13 years, but the program wouldn't exist today without Noah Volker. Son of the organization's directors, he had cerebral palsy and significant hearing and vision loss. Noah's parents wanted him to make friends through recreational activities like other children his age. And if there's anybody who ever had a right to not be happy, it would be him. But he was. He was just perfectly happy all the time. And he liked absolutely nothing better than being with people. He, he never wanted to stay home, never wanted to be in the house doing things by himself. But because there weren't many opportunities in Gainesville, Endeavor Recreation was born. Noah became the symbol of the organization, showing other participants limitations would not hold him back from painting and playing. When Noah passed, there was no better way to honor him than by renaming the organization after the amazing young man who started it all. Noah's endeavor has grown since then. From soccer to arts and crafts, the organization gives those with disabilities the opportunities to get involved and stay active. But Shelley Volker recognizes the need to spread the word. We can get a more awareness out there. More people discover us and decide they like what we do, then more people will be willing, I think, to help us with the effort to, to keep this going and make it bigger and bigger. While growing as an organization, so has the family nest. The Volkers recently adopted three special needs children. Through their research and experience, Shelley and Will are challenging their children to develop their physical skills. My hopes is I want all of them, even William with the, who has out of the three of them, the most of the disabilities, to be an active, part of the community and being able to support yourself. They have come a long way in little time. It wasn't too long ago, William was confined to a wheelchair. But this couple is helping to impact more than just a few children. William Volker sees the growing acceptance of disabled children in the Gainesville community. The parents out more with their kids and getting them involved in things and including them in regular activities where I didn't see that before when we first moved here. And the Volkers consider the city to be a contributing factor. They believe Gainesville is ahead of the curve in keeping up with the accessibility standards in the community. Noah's Endeavor plays soccer at Westside Park and found that wheelchair participants were struggling to get onto the field through the main entrance. One email to the city of Gainesville and this ramp was put into place. The partnership and resulting open communication between the city and the organization has enhanced handicap access for all. So Noah's Endeavor deliberately does their activities in the community. And their great relationship with the city is more than just business. And they have great kids. Um, and Will and Shelley, are, they're great with kids in general. Uh, and, and to step up and to, and to really take on, uh, you know, the joys of parenthood with the, with the three children there, they're raising now. It's just amazing. The Volkers encourage everyone to come out and join the fun. Just as their website states, Noah wouldn't want anyone to be left out. Shauna Mackey, WUFT News. Florida's new education commissioner starts, starts the job today. Governor Scott recently appointed Tony Bennett, a Republican who served as superintendent of public instruction in Indiana. Bennett lost his re-election bid there after Democrat Glenda Ritz organized a grassroots campaign with the teachers union. State Impact Florida reporter Sarah Gonzalez caught up with Tony Bennett over the phone about his plans for education in Florida. Tony Bennett, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> Let me first ask you, why did you want to be the education commissioner 
in Florida. Florida afforded me the opportunity to continue to do a job that I love to do, but it, it also, even to a greater extent, allowed us the greatest opportunity to affect children, not only the 2.7 million in Florida, but also the state could affect the national footprint and the national debate on education reform. In Indiana, your job was to work with the governor, Mitch Daniels, to kind of push Indiana schools in another direction. But Florida already has a lot of the policies that you push through in Indiana, merit pay for teachers, teacher evaluations, holding back third graders who don't read at grade level. Now, when you were a finalist for the position in Florida, it was a bit controversial. Some people pointed out that, you know, more than a million people in Indiana voted not to reelect you as superintendent. Why do you think you didn't get reelected in Indiana? You know, I came to this job in 2009 to work with a governor who literally gave me, if you will, a blank slate and said, do the right things for Indiana children and I'll support you. I told Governor Daniels in 2009 that if we did this job that way, it would likely lead to a backlash that could limit me to be a one-term state chief. And, and I told him I was comfortable with that. And when you talk about th- this backlash, I imagine you're talking some of the backlash coming from, from public school teachers in Indiana, right? There's no question, Sarah. Uh, but, hey, if improving teacher quality in our state by treating teachers the way they should be treated as professionals, if that caused me to lose on November 6, 2012, so be it. I'm okay with that. Gerard Robinson is is Florida's former education commissioner. He walked away from the job in July for family reasons, but one of his legacies is a controversy over standardized test scores. He increased the requirements on the FCAT, Florida's standardized test, and then when too many students got low scores, he lowered the requirements again so more students would do better. Do you agree with that decision? I, I think part of the issue that Gerard may have gotten into is his administration and his pursuit of adjusting cut scores was like the first time it had been done in a dozen years. Resetting cut scores on a more regular basis provides a safeguard against the exact phenomenon that you described. Now, you you are a former science teacher yourself. Yes, ma'am. Teacher evaluations are a hot button issue. And one of the big areas of concern in Florida is that some teachers, including science teachers and history teachers, they're evaluated on the test scores of subjects they don't teach. I'm wondering what you think of that policy, because I know that in Indiana, the state system for teacher evaluations kind of allows for teachers to be evaluated on subjects that they teach. What I can tell you today is we are engaged in a full scale review to see what we can do to bring a system of evaluation to Florida teachers and schools and communities that really holds true to the big ideas of educator evaluation. Okay, Mr. Bennett, thank you for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed the interview. With State Impact Florida, I'm Sarah Gonzalez in Miami. Since 1951, Ward's Supermarket has been a fixture in the Gainesville food culture. Known for its emphasis on locally sourced and organic foods, the supermarket has been family-owned from its humble beginnings as a small wooden building with a chicken wire fence as its front door to today's home on Northwest 23rd Street. WUFT multimedia reporter Christina DiVerona spent some time before the holiday at Gainesville's only independently-owned supermarket in the first of an occasional series on food spots in the area. 
Ward Supermarket was bustling this holiday season as people in Gainesville were preparing their holiday meals. Registers were beeping, people were laughing, and customers were smiling. Trish Ward has been working at Ward Supermarket since she was 15 years old. After working in the supermarket for three years, she married into the Ward family. She and her husband Billy now run the supermarket. Billy's grandparents opened the supermarket in 1951, passed it down to Billy's parents, and now to Billy and Trish. We are the only independent grocery store left in Gainesville. We're the only one left standing, um, which is something to be proud of. Four generations in the grocery business is very, very, very rare. It's almost no generation, no stores make it four generations. So um, we're certainly very unusual. So my husband and I are here. Both of my children are here. Both of their spouses are here. Um, my sister-in-law runs the office upstairs. My niece is the natural food assistant manager. Um, and that's pretty much the family that works here now. Family plays a large role in the operations at Ward's. Some employees have even been working there for more than 25 years. Even the customers become part of the family. Jeremiah Gordon said he has seen some of the same workers at Ward's for quite some time. He has been shopping at the supermarket for the past 40 years. We caught up with the 61-year-old while he was shopping with his daughter, preparing for one of their holiday meals. It's amazing how things have changed, but one thing have not changed, but Ward's supermarket. So many things have changed, but they got a legacy here. Ward's is a, it's a family place. It's a family tradition. It's a very, very sweet place. Family-oriented, and it's good. I will continue until I can't go no more. When I can't go no more, then she'll be coming for me. Are you going to be coming for him? She I'll better. go take care of my daddy because right, I love you. All right, girl. <laughs> That's what I like about this thing. <laughs> this is my adopted daughter. She's so sweet. Yes, she is. We support many, many local vendors. Our key is pretty much what the rest of the world is catching on to of supporting local vendors. That's something that we've believed in strongly from the conception of our business. Um, and I think it's probably a lot of what has kept us open is being able to buy from local people. Number one, your quality is fresh because it's picked straight from the farm and brought in usually the same day. Number two, your prices are down because you don't have all the freight that um, is upcharged to get something across the U.S. Certainly, if something's not in season and we have to, um, you know, import it from somewhere, we do that. But we certainly try to buy everything we can local. Trish Ward said the grocery business is a lot of work and can be very stressful because it is seven days a week for 12 hours a day. She sometimes worries about future Ward generations continuing the family business. We walk out of here Christmas Eve about to fall down because we're so tired, you know. So for those reasons, I... I have real mixed emotions about it staying open another generation because I would like for the children not to have to work the hours we've had to work because you give up a lot of family time. But at the same token, it's such a wonderful business and it's such a wonderful thing for the community in that aspect. So I guess that's a choice they'll have to make. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Christina Deverona.
For more on wards and photos from the market, log on to WUFT.org. AAA has released a new report on gas prices, indicating prices have gone up since the start of the new year. The national average is up by two cents, while gas prices in the southeast have jumped an average of eight cents. However, AAA spokeswoman Jessica Brady says a downfall on gas prices is expected by the end of the month. Well, we have seen gas prices increase steadily since about the last week of December. However, we should start to see prices either stabilize and maybe even retreat a bit as we get towards the end of the month and maybe uh, start February. Even though we've seen gas prices going up since the start of 2013, both the national average and state averages in the southeast are less than they were last year. Brady says this is due to the fact that U.S. oil production is rising and that we may see a more positive change by the end of 2013. Well, we're looking at reduced fuel demand and an increased production. Um, as you probably know, the U.S. is producing more and more oil, um, which is allowing us to have plentiful supply at a time when demand numbers are really less than they have been for quite some time. So it is forecast that we will be paying less for gas this year than we did in 2012. Brady also says that gas prices may vary from county to county depending on their taxes, gas brands in the area, and many other local factors. The national average price for gas is $3.31, and Florida's average is $3.44. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Shane Chernoff. And I'm Lindsay Zients.